0: I told you that, uh, God willing, I'm going to preach through the life and teachings of Jesus, and it might well take three or four years. And uh, part of that, will be reviewing some of the material that I preached through the Gospel of John, but most of the Gospel of John happens in the last week of Jesus' life. So, I have a hard time remembering what I preached last week, and I know you do too, so... uh, by the time I get to the end of the Gospel of John, it will have been five or six years, and we all will have forgotten uh, what I preached through the Gospel of John. But uh, in, in, in thinking about this series, I uh, thought of an Old Testament story. Abraham uh, had a son, Isaac, and he had a servant that he sent to uh, a far country to get a wife for his son, Isaac. And uh, so the servant goes with camels that are laden down with treasure. It's a wonderful story. I'll not recount the whole story, but he finds Rebecca, uh, and he goes to Rebecca's family and asks, can I... Take her back to be the wife of Isaac. And uh, they say, well, let her, let her stay with us for a few days. And uh, the servant is insistent, and he says, no, I, I really want to get back in a hurry, so please, can we just go ahead and leave? And so they said, well, let us call the young lady. And so they call Rebecca out and they ask her, will you go with this man? And she says, yes, I will go. She didn't know that much. I mean, she could see that obviously uh, the servant had a lot of wealth at his disposal, and he said, God has blessed Abraham, given him a son, given him great wealth, and we would like to have your daughter to be part of our family. But still, it was a great leap of faith for Rebecca to say, yes, I'll go with. But the question is, will you go with this man? And that question that they asked concerning Rebecca, who was probably a fairly young girl, uh, is a question that uh, I preface this series with concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you go with this man? And um, of course, if you're going to go with Jesus Christ, you need to know something about him. You need to know who you are receiving. And so that's the great goal of this series of sermons, of the life and teachings of Jesus as found in the Gospels, is uh, for you to learn who it is who is asking, will you come and go with me? Will you give your life to me? I hope that uh, for those of you who are unconverted, that even today might be the day that you answer in your heart and say, yes, I will go with him. uh, But there are others of us who have been walking with the Lord Jesus for years and years. And uh, as we learn about what Jesus did and what Jesus said, I hope that our hearts become increasingly glad and increasingly committed to, I'm glad that I have gone with this man. This was a a good decision and I, I just get more and more glad about it as the years go by. Well, at this time of the year, we think a lot about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. But what was Jesus doing before Bethlehem? Now, in order to answer that question, I want to limit myself just to this one chapter today. I don't want to be delving back into the Old Testament, but just look at this one chapter and answer the question. What was Jesus doing before Bethlehem? And there are three answers that I want to point out to you that we'll find in this first chapter of John. And the first thing that we'll see is that he was enjoying being with God and being God. He was enjoying being with God and enjoying God. And then the second thing that we'll see is that he was revealing himself to an unreceptive people. He was before Bethlehem, He was revealing himself to an unreceptive people, reveals himself to the world, but they don't receive him, reveals himself to his own people, they don't receive him. The third thing that we'll see from this passage of scripture is that uh, Jesus was supervising spiritual births. So before Bethlehem, he was supervising spiritual births. Several weeks ago, in uh, the College and Career Sunday School class, we started uh, talking and discussing what are some important things that you need to share in common with a prospective mate. I was very impressed with the answers that the class came up with. And, in fact, I uh, wrote them all down. I thought that it would be very good for me to use in future future. Uh, premarital counseling sessions. So here are some of the things that were mentioned. I'm bringing up the list for one particular thing, but here are some of the very wise insights that were given by the class. First of all, if you are a Christian, you need to marry a Christian. You need to be attracted to this person. Uh, You need to have similar views on politics and ethics. You need to have similar views on money. You need to have Similar views on the roles of husband and wife and parents. You need to have similar views on ministry and church. Uh, uh, you need to have similar views on theology. You need, it's, it's very helpful if you have similar interests. And then if you have similar ideas about how much time do you think that a spouse ought to spend with a spouse. The one that I brought this list up for is family. What kind of family does your spouse come from? Now, this is not always a deal breaker. There are people who come from broken families who are uh, capable of being faithful spouses who will remain faithful till death ends that relationship. But uh, still, it's very helpful uh, to know what kind of family... The, um, the person that you're interested in marrying came from. How do their parents relate to one another? When, uh, when doing premarital counseling, I'll often ask uh, the, the couple, how did your, how did your parents uh, disagree with one another? Because that's going to be your, your tendency to disagree. Do they give one another the silent treatment? Then you think that's how conflict is supposed to be handled. Did they yell and fuss and get mad and not speak to each other for days? Well, that's the way that you think that conflict is going to be handled. And so it's good to kind of explore where a person came from. And uh, then it's good to see the person that you're thinking about marrying in, in the family context. How do they behave towards their parents? How do they behave towards their siblings? You can learn a lot about a person when you see them with your family. I experienced a little bit of that this past week when I went with Jim Bob to his old stomping grounds to, uh, is that community called Caledonia down there in Caledonia, just outside of uh, Hopkinsville, Kentucky. And, uh, we, we went into a shop where some of his kin folk were standing around talking under the auspices of working and, uh, And I saw how they related to Jim Bob. I saw how Jim Bob related to them. And then one of the local uh, grain co-ops was giving a free barbecue lunch. And so we piled into two trucks and we went and we ate barbecue. And I saw Jim Bob uh, interacting with those farmers and uh, saw how they acted towards Jim Bob. And I came away liking Jim Bob better and I liked him to begin with. But I just had a feel. These are good, down-to-earth people. They, uh, they know a good man, and the way they interact with Jim Bob, they're treating him like a good man. He's got a good reputation in this community. And uh, being down there in Caledonia with you made me come away with a fresh appreciation, and a fresh appreciation for you, seeing you react, uh, seeing the way you behaved with that family who's known you since you were a little boy. Well, I I believe that this passage of Scripture can give us an experience similar to that. We see Jesus interacting with his ancient family. We see Jesus as he's interacting in the Trinity. We see what Jesus has been doing before Bethlehem. And so, will you go with this man? Here's an opportunity for you to see him from way, way back. What has he been like? And I think that what we see here should cause us to say, well, I like him even better than I liked him before. I do appreciate Jesus and love Jesus because of what he did at Bethlehem and what he did in the years after that. But when I see this, it makes me love and appreciate him even more. So rather than reading this whole text all at once, let's just take it a bit at a time and see, first of all, what was Jesus doing before Bethlehem? Well, first of all, He was enjoying being with God and being God. Look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. Now, as you will see, as it will become clear, the Word is Jesus. So why is he described as the Word? Well, a Word is a, a unit of thought. In fact, I think that it's virtually impossible for you to have intelligent thoughts without words. Uh, you, you might be able to think just on the level of a, of a dolphin or on the level of a whale or a chimpanzee if you don't have words. But if you're going to think on the level of a human, then you've got to have words. Words are the way uh, that we recognize our own thoughts, and words are also means of relating to others. And so word is not just a unit of thought. It's also a unit of communication. And before anything else had been made, Jesus is identified as the Word. As I'm going to try to make the point here, and this passage of Scripture does, there was communication going on within the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, who is called the Word, and God the Holy Spirit were in perfect fellowship with one another before anything else had been made. In the beginning was the Word. Now, I don't know when you think the beginning was. Let's just go back to uh, the day that God was going to start creating everything that was created. Is that the beginning? Well, if we go back to that and say that's the beginning, we find that the Word, Jesus, is already there. In the beginning was the Word. The Word never came to be in the beginning. Well, okay, let's just back it up a few million years then. So let's go a a million years earlier than the creation of everything. You want to call that the beginning? Well, whatever you call the beginning, when you get there, you'll see that in the beginning was the Word. And then notice next that the Word was with God. Now, before we get to the theological significance of this, let's think for a bit about just the, what you might call the psychological significance of this, or the spiritual significance of this. Jesus was in harmony with God. He was with God. He was in cooperation with God. He was in agreement with God. Let me give you an example to the contrary. I... uh, When I was a teenager, one time I was walking in some woods, and there were these three fellas back there who decided that they were going to whoop me. And uh, they had been using drugs, uh, and their their drugs had made them uh, saucy. And one of them came up and grabbed my hat. And uh, I said to him, give me my hat back. And he, he said, no, you're going to have to take it. And then one of them picked up a club off the off the ground there. And he said, if you touch that hat, I'm going to bash your head in. And so here are these two guys standing here. And then there were this third guy over here who wasn't saying anything. And I could see that things were fixing to get feisty. And I was getting ready to go hoss cartwright <laughs> and Bruce Lee all at the same time. And so I looked at this kid who was quiet and I said are you with these guys and he said yeah I'm with them because I wanted to know before I did damage to him as well (laughs) so it wouldn't be fitting in a sermon to tell you the details of what happened but it turned out well or I wouldn't have brought it up at all but I was asking him, are you with these guys? And he said, yes, I'm with them. I'm with them in, in what they're attempting to do here. I, I'm going to cooperate with them. And, uh, but on a, in a much better sense, the same sense of the word I think is used here concerning Jesus. There was no conflict, no disagreement whatsoever between the word and God. He was with God. Now, that's kind of the psychological or the spiritual significance of being with God, but it also is important theologically as we think about who God is. When you get back, if, you, if, we, if all you've got is this verse of Scripture, you've got at least a duality in the Godhead. There's at least God and the Word, and they've always been together from the beginning. Now, the rest of the Bible teaches us that there's a third person in the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. But if you've got this, then you've got at least the Father and the Word. And the Word was with God. So the Word is something that can be distinguished from God. And yet, look at the next phrase, and the Word was God. So he, the Word is distinguishable from God because he was with God but then he is also equal with God because it says that the Word was God. And so before uh, before the Lord Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, he was enjoying being with God and enjoying God. Now, there was no deficit in the Godhead. There was no... There was no feeling of, hey, we need somebody else to make us happy here. I'm reminded of a couple of poems by the um, metaphysical poet John Donne. His last name is spelled D-O-N-N-E. John Donne's a very interesting character. He, uh, he had actually two careers as a poet. At first, he was a very, very racy uh, poet, uh, almost almost R-rated at times. And uh, when he's writing about his his lover, but he wrote some very good love poetry. And then suddenly there's this change, and he writes all of this sacred poetry. Well, what happened to him was that he got born again, and he took his he took his poetic talents that he was dedicating to uh, female love, and he turned it into love for God. You you are familiar with some of his poems, so if you know, "Death Be Not Proud," though some have called the that's that's John Donne, or No Man Is an Island. Uh, that's that's from one of his essays, Holy Meditations. Or Ask Not for Whom the Bell Tolls. It tolls for thee. That's also from John Donne, from one of his uh, meditations. But uh, anyway, he, he wrote w- during his pre-conversion phase. He he wrote these poems uh, to his to his lady love, and. And he describes her as being the entire world. So in one of the poems, On the Sun Rising, he's he talking to the sun and he says, We've made your job so much easier now. I know that you're an old son and rather tired. We're making it easy on you because the whole world is right here. It's just us two. No need for kings or no need for other, other things going on. The whole world is right here it was his way of saying, I am so satisfied with this, with this love that, that I have here. Well, John Donne was being hyperbolical when he said that, but it is not at all being hyperbolic or exaggerating when we say that the unity and the fellowship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit was a perfect fellowship, perfectly enjoyable, and there was nothing lacking So God never looked around and said, you know, I'm kind of lonely. I think I'll make some angels. I'm kind of lonely and I think I'll make some people. No, he made what he made because he is so full of joy. And it's the tendency of joy to make other things capable of joy. And that's what he did when he created the world. So it was the overflowing of great happiness that caused the Lord to make things. Now, who was it that did the creating? Was it God the Father or was it God the Son? Well, we just read here that it says that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And now I believe that there follow five statements that indicate that Jesus, the Word, was God. So it's supporting statements, supporting statements. And let's see what these supporting statements are that that indicate that the Word was God. So, first of all, his eternality. In verse 2, it says he was in the beginning with God. I've already talked to you about that. But only God is eternal. Jesus was in the beginning with God. But that's the first thing that shows that he was God. And then the second thing is there in verse 3. second thing that shows that he is God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So I ask the question, was it God the Father who created or was it God the Son? I think that the answer is both. And then we can also say that the Holy Spirit was involved in it when we read Genesis chapter 1, that the Spirit brooded over the face of the waters. But all three persons of the Trinity were involved, but here the emphasis is put on the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. All things were made through Him, and without Him... Was not anything made that was made. And so everything that is, is beautiful and pleasing and satisfying in this world was made by Jesus Christ. All of the, uh, the beautiful and intricate flowers with their fragrance, made by Jesus Christ. All of the delightful foods with all of their uh, spicy, sweet, scintillating flavors, all made by Jesus Christ. The, the the joy of feeling warmth of the fire when you're cold. The joy of feeling the coolness when you're hot. The joy of feeling the rain and seeing the snow and all the beauties of, of the ice and the crystals in the snow. All made by Jesus Christ. All of that uh, should make Jesus more dear to you as you remember what he was doing before Bethlehem. And remembering that this is uh, a world that has been designed and executed by Jesus Christ, so he is God because he 's eternal he 's God because only God can create and uh, and then notice at the beginning of verse four, he is self existent in him was life, in him was life. Now, you and I have life in us, but it has been conveyed to us. It is not spontaneous within us. Uh, No one is self-existent except except God. It can really, truly, literally be said of no one except God that he is self-existent and in him is life. And so when it is said here concerning the word that in him was life... It is a way of bolstering the assertion that he was God. So, he's eternal, he's creative, he's self-existent. And then look at his character at the end of verse 4. And the life was the light of men. So, light is a symbol of knowledge. Light is a symbol of reasoning capacity. And uh, Jesus is here said to be... The light of men. So the fact that we are able to to reason is a result of the infiltration of the life of Jesus Christ into the human race. He's the Word. Another way that the word word could be translated is reason or story. So it could say, in the beginning was the reason or the story. Uh, and, and, but now it says that this reason is the light of men. And so uh, it is because of the work and the infiltration of the life of Jesus Christ that we are capable of reasoning the way that we are. Some of the ancient philosophers would, would chide their students and say, you undervalue yourselves... Because you don't understand that God has torn off part of himself and put it into you. And that part of God that he has put into you is the capacity for reason. And so don't do anything that will compromise your capacity to reason. Uh, Which of course is what makes uh, getting drunk wrong. It's what makes taking drugs wrong. when When you... take drugs or when you use alcohol to excess it is clouding and effacing the part of you that is most like God your capacity to reason and so Jesus reveals himself as as someone who is light and who gives this great gift to human beings that life was the light of men So that's the fourth evidence that he is God the fifth evidence is there in verse 5 when it says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And this is his sovereign invincibility. He is sovereignly invincible. And here you can see that uh, it looks like there's kind of a battle going on. Light is shining in the darkness. Light is good, light is reason. Darkness is evil. Darkness is uh, brutishness. And the dark, evil, brutishness doesn't like the light. But it cannot overcome it. it. It is invincible because it proceeds from God Himself. So, in answer to the question, what was Jesus doing before Bethlehem? The first answer is, He was enjoying... Being with God and being God. Now I'm going to read verses 6 and following, but I'm not going to preach from these verses today. So let's, let's read them and then I'll skip down to the next part. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And so John is anticipating, verse 14, go ahead and skip down there and look at verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But everything in verses 1 through 13 is previous to the Word becoming flesh. So this is, verses 1 through 13 have to do with what happened before Bethlehem. And so John takes us to eternity past, And then he takes us up to John the Baptist, says just a little bit about John the Baptist, and then he comes back to Jesus, which is where I'm going to pick up things again. So it says in verse 10, he was in the world. So Jesus, the Word, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Now I'm into the second point of my sermon now. What was Jesus doing before Bethlehem? And the second answer is he was revealing himself to unreceptive people. And these unreceptive people are divided into two groups. The first group is just called the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So before Jesus came to Bethlehem, he evidenced himself in the world. He evidenced himself in the works of creation. He evidenced himself in the fact that human beings are capable of reason. Why are they capable of reason? Because the light that gives life to every man was coming into the world. That light was the that life was the light of men. He's evidencing himself. And there, there are people who, without the aid of the scriptures, concluded that there must be a God and that he has made us in his image because we are capable of, because we're capable of reasoning. And so there were some people who recognized that there are gods. Some of them even said there's only one main god. But none of them recognized Jesus, so they might imagine this God to be someone like Zeus, someone who is a, a a thunderer, someone who sends down thunderbolts, and he's he's the main god, but he's assisted by other gods. There are well, he's got a wife god. He's got a he's got a wife god named Hera, and uh, and he's always unfaithful to Hera and. But Hera's useful. Help, Hera helps with things. And there's she, she helps with childbirth. And, and then there's a God who would help with, with the crops. And then there's a God who would supervise the world of the dead. And then there's a, a, God who, a goddess who would help to supervise the hunt. And so on. There are all these other gods. And so they recognize as, as through a, a cloud, there's a sun on the other side of the cloud. Here's what we imagine him to be. But they got it wrong. They got it wrong. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. Well, then he revealed himself to a special people. I think verse 11 is talking about the Jew, the Jews. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. Now remember, this is true about Jesus after Bethlehem. But at this point, we're still talking about Jesus before Bethlehem. So when God revealed himself... In, uh, in delivering his people out of Egypt, that was Jesus revealing himself to be the deliverer of slaves. When God gave his law to his people on Mount Sinai, that was, that was God revealing things about Jesus. And among those Jews, there were some who received him. We'll see about them in just a moment. But for the most part, he came to his own And his own did not receive him. But he was was revealing himself in the world. He was revealing himself to his people, but they were unreceptive. Now, thirdly, what was Jesus doing before Bethlehem? We've already seen that he was enjoying being with God and enjoying being God. We've seen that he was revealing himself to an unreceptive people. And now, thirdly and finally, we'll see that he was supervising spiritual births. So, verse 12. Remember, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but there were some who did. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so, During the days before Bethlehem, there were some people who did receive him. Most rejected him, but some did. Note that there are two sides to this spiritual birth that are presented here. There is the human side, and then there's the divine side. The human side of these spiritual births is that those who were born spiritually did two things. It's really two ways of looking at the same thing, but it's described with two different words here. The first one is, they received him. They received him. It wasn't just that they believed things that were said about him. When they looked by faith at the way that Jesus was revealing himself, they were able to go beyond the facts of things they were going able to go beyond the statements of truths and see that there was a person and they received him and that's also the way that we are saved today let me get ahead of myself a little bit we are saved not because we understand all the doctrine or even because we understand any doctrine in itself we're saved insofar as that doctrine leads us to understand that there is a person that we must receive. And it is in receiving Jesus that people were saved before Bethlehem. And it is in receiving Jesus that people are saved since Jesus came as a baby in Bethlehem. So the first part of the human side is they received him. And then that same truth is spoken in different words. As many as received him, to those who believed in his name, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, when we're talking about believing in his name, it is, another word for believe would be trust, and another word for name would be revealed character. So they trusted in his revealed character. That's what a name is. It's not just, it's not just the letters and that make up a person's name or the the phonemes that a person pronounces to say someone's name. It's just, it's not that. When the Bible talks about someone's name, it's talking about his revealed character. And so here, when it says that there were some people who were born again, they were born again by receiving him. They were born by trusting in his revealed character. Now, that's the human side of it. And then, This verse also gives us the divine side of it. And it starts off with saying, just so that you don't misunderstand, let me explain three things that it is not. So here are the three things who were born. Verse 13 says, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Those are the three negative things. And then it states, but of God. Let's look at those three negative things and see what the Lord is telling us here. So before Bethlehem, Jesus was supervising spiritual births. Most people did not receive him, but there were some people who did receive him. And there were some people who did believe in his name. Now, why did they do it? First reason is it's not because they were born into the right family. That's what's meant by not of blood. So it's not because not just because they were Israelites. So grace is not communicated through genetics. And of course that same thing is true today. I I I know that people who baptize babies have an answer for what I'm getting ready to say, but it just seems to me so clear. That you are not born by birth into the kingdom of God. And so you shouldn't give babies the sign of the covenant. The sign of the new covenant is that you're baptized. We baptize people who have been born again. We think that the sign of the covenant should be given to everyone who's in the covenant. But we just think that the new covenant is filled with people who have been born again. Not born of blood. But what I'm saying about the new covenant is true of part of the old covenant. So it is true that if you were just born a physical Israelite, you received the sign of the covenant in those days, and that was circumcision. But the teaching of the Bible here is that not all of those who were circumcised were born again. But there were some who were born again, and it wasn't because of their birth. Not of blood. So that's the first clarification. They're born again not because of who their mom and dad were. And and, of course, that's still true. You're not going to get into heaven because of who your mom and dad were or are. And then the second negative is nor of the will of the flesh. Now, here I think in talking about the flesh, the flesh is not used uh, in the negative sense that, it's, that we find it in much of the tens. It's just in much of the New Testament. It is just being used here to say that it's not a human will. So... They were born again, not because they came up with this great idea and really wanted it themselves without God's intervening. So they were born again. This is the way that the New International Version puts. Who were were born not of human decision. Not by natural descent. That's not by blood not by human decision. And then the third way that they translate is, nor by a husband's will, but I'll get to that in just a second. So we're thinking about this second one now. It's not by the will of the flesh. And so uh, this is what is taught throughout the Bible that if you want to come to Jesus, it's because God has been at work in you. It is God who works in you both to will and, and to act according to his good pleasure. Quoting from Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. It's God who works in you to will. Later on in the gospel of John. Jesus will, Jesus will say no one can come to me. Unless the father who sent me draws him. And so here John is already making the point. For those people who came into the kingdom of God. They can't put their thumbs in their suspenders. And say well it's just because I was a little smarter than the next guy. They can't say it's because I came from the right family, because it's not by blood, it's not by the will of the flesh, and then a third thing is mentioned here, that it's not, nor the will of man. Now, in its broadest sense, this would mean that somebody else can't get the new birth for you. It can't be like like the Mormons teach, that you can be baptized for somebody else, and that will ensure that that person gets to go to heaven it can't be by somebody else's decision. The word that is here translated man can also be translated husband. And so in a more particular sense, what might, what might be said here is that your spouse cannot make this decision for you. So especially in the case of women in the ancient world, they had to pretty much do what their husbands told them to do. And, uh, And so John is just making clear here. The Holy Spirit is making clear here. When you are born again, it's not because of who your mom and dad are. It's not because you were smart enough to make this decision. And it's also not because somebody else forced you to make it. So it's not by the blood. It's not by the will of the flesh. And it's not by the will of man. So how was it? But of God. It is God who accomplishes this this new birth in those who did receive him before Bethlehem. So most people rejected him. There were some people who received him, not because of their family, not because of their husband, not because of their own smarts, but it was God. Now this kind of preaching, uh, well, that's still true today. So let me make that point and then I'll say something about this kind of preaching. But it's still true today that the only way that you're going to be born again is if God gives you the new birth. Later in the Gospel of John, Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus. <clears throat> and, Nicodemus <clears throat> and he tells Nicodemus, unless a man is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So that's still true today. You're never going to enter the kingdom of God Unless God gives you the new birth. Now, what about this kind of preaching? There are some people who will say, preacher, when you talk like that, you take away people's motivation entirely to do what they can do. And so I, the preacher, answer back, and just, and just what is it that you think people are able to do? Just what is it that you, you think that people are able to do? Whatever the answer is, my response is going to be what people need most of all is to understand that they cannot save themselves. And and instead of looking at, I'm going to do better this year, I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to be more faithful in church attendance, just to realize, hey, all of that is not going to do any good unless God gives me the new birth. And then, with God's blessing that doesn't make people sit back and say, well, then I'm just going to wait on the new birth. No, with God's blessing, what that does is that sets people to crying out to God. Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, if I'm going to be saved, you've got to do the saving. Teach me what I need to know about Jesus. I want to receive him. I want to believe him. Uh, Give me the new birth. And so... I hope that that's the case with some of the people who are listening to this message. That perhaps God the Holy Spirit has revealed to you today, hey, I cannot do this. I must be born again, and it's not going to be by the blood. It's not not going to be by the physical descent. It's not going to be by my own smart. It's not going to be by somebody else making this decision for me. I must be born of God. Jim Bob, come and uh, lead us in a concluding hymn.